You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Well, hello there, Sasha. Hello there, Stella. So we have a couple of special familiar guests with us today. We'd like to introduce two of the members of the Gender Exploratory Therapy Association, Lisa Marciano and Joe Burgo. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Nice to be here. So we we wanted to have you on today to kind of talk about a couple of important things. And we thought we could start out by just... um, we, we've talked a lot about Geta throughout our various episodes, Stella, and it's it's often in passing, but we really wanted to explain a little bit more about the organization, why we exist, who we are, and then uh, share kind of an exciting announcement about an important launch that we are doing. So where, where do we want to start, guys? Well, uh, maybe I'll just say a little bit about why I thought Geta should exist. You know, the, the the three of us were the original uh, thinkers around it. And then we were very quickly joined by uh, Roberto D'Angelo from Australia, who was a very uh, important member of the team. And more recently, and very happily, Joe has also joined us. But I was getting so many emails from clinicians. I was getting contacted by so many clinicians who said, you know, I think there's something off about this affirmative approach doesn't really feel right to me, but I don't, I don't really know what to do about it. And I was also getting a lot of emails, as I know all of us do, from families who were looking for therapists who would engage in real therapy rather than simply kind of uh, co-signing a young person's self-diagnosis. So it seemed that there needed to be a place For therapists to find each other, uh, create new knowledge about how to work in this space, and to be able to offer their services to members of the public, and hence, Geta was born. Right. That's how how I found Geta, is because I was uncertain how to work with this population. I was looking for supervision. I'd heard about Sasha already, and Sasha recommended me to come into the group because there's there's nothing out there for people who are not working in the affirmative mode. Yeah, I, I, I suppose I've I've had no more than yourselves, like so many therapists who are keen to work in it, but kind of afraid to. There's, there's this kind of exceptionalism of gender as if they're not allowed work with gender. And when somebody kind of is pushed away, kind of saying, you won't get this. You, you know, I think a lot of clinicians feel it would be arrogant of them to presume that they could. And so they go looking for, well, where could I get trained? Where could I find out about it? And there really isn't very many places. Not There's what there's 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 certainly a hell of a lot of workshops and training available for gender affirmative. But there isn't for any other sort of um, approach 
to understanding gender. So, you know, for example, exploratory developmental approach, a trauma-informed approach. There's a lot of ways to understand gender. But I do think that there, there it really feels like there was, you know, one show in town for a few years and all the general therapists stayed away. And we, we kind of welcomed them, I think. And And if you have a feeling in your gut that, affirmation might not be the whole answer. You can feel very alienated and isolated within professional circles because everyone else is uh, going along with that train of thought. And uh, if you say something on your listserv or your you know professional Facebook page or something, you often get attacked. So people are kind of washing up on our shores after having some rough experiences. Plus, there's this feeling that gender is this exception to everything you know. Yeah. Everything you ever learned as a therapist, it doesn't apply to gender. So you you feel very lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think what really stands out for me is that all of the clinicians who are now really active within GETA and for our kind of leadership team, we really believe in a kind of back to basics approach, which addresses what you're bringing up, Joe, and something, Stella, you talk about a lot. And it's so important because when you have this emerging population with a new kind of presenting problem, it's very seductive to latch onto a, a new exotic kind of novel therapy approach. But really what we know from decades of watching kind of psychiatric um socially mediated phenomena come and go is that a back to basics approach that really honors the complexity of a person's psyche and and how we are impacted by our environment. That seems to be a tried and true way of working with different types of patient groups. And I really like um, a line that we often repeat within the GETA membership statement and some of our um, online resources, psychological approach to psychological problems. And that's, I think, what really makes GETA stand out compared to some of the novel therapeutic approaches that are being used on a novel population. We really like the uh, the shiny new toy in psychology, don't we? <laughs> Every few years for, for 150 years, we've been coming up with, we've got a new one. <laughs> And, you know, some of them are very, very interesting, but and it does make for a very interesting study. And yet, honestly, if you just brought it back 150 years and said all along it was a psychological approach to psychological problems, that could have covered all the CBTs and solution bills. You know what I mean? There's, a, there's an awful lot of different jargon is big in our field. It sure is. Isn't it? We suffer from it. We really suffer from it. And I suppose I think we all um, were were very engaged by the fact that um, a lot of therapists in Geta and outside Geta who were contacting us really sought not only to join Geta, but they, they're seeking guidance. I think there's a lack of confidence among therapists. And I actually think therapists, any therapist could handle gender. There's a bit of a, there's a bit of a kind of, you have to learn the jargon. You have to learn a few concepts. You have to know about the online world. There's a few things you need to know. But really, if, you, if you're an experienced clinician, you should be able to handle it. But I feel that there's a very strong desire for a lot of therapists to say, 
give me an actual document, give me something that I can actually work from. And so we've decided to try and um, try and reach that, try and achieve that. Um, who wants to t- who wants to launch it to the world? Our grand new plan. Well, we've been working on this document now for I think it's been a couple of years. So it's a group of international clinicians. Uh, you know, highly trained, very skilled, lots of experience in this area. And we have developed a clinical guide for therapists working with gender questioning youth. And we've done it in conjunction with the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine. So it's kind of been co-authored by Segum and Geta. And it is a very usable but thorough a document that kind of goes through what exploratory therapy is and isn't. It looks at the research, kind of an overview of what we know. It looks at other clinical guidance from other countries. Uh, and it just looks at basically at a psychotherapy approach to gender dysphoria. And, um, and, and finally, there are some really terrific case studies in there that uh, will help clinicians see, oh, yes, that's what they're doing. That's that's what I do when I see, you know, people with other internal conflicts. So uh, the case studies kind of cover a range of presentations. And uh, I think it would be a really strong start for anyone just wanting to get up to speed with this. And we'll be launching it at a webinar in early December. I think one of the most reassuring things the guidance does is both in the general chapters and in the case studies is it it takes the concept of gender and shows how it puts it in a developmental relational context and it it, it shows people oh yeah this is just like what we normally do I think it 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 takes the the fear factor out is that I'm not yeah. dealing with something absolutely exceptional it's just it's these are developmental issues, right? Yeah, that's the key thing. When you actually can read it to yourself and look at the guidelines, look at the kind of the case study, look at where it's coming from. It'll I feel it'll be a very reassuring document for people who think, I think I might be able to work in this field, but I kind of don't dare because I'm being told it's so exotic nobody will ever understand it. Um, and and then they'll see guidelines and they'll see this and they'll go, OK, OK, this is doable. I think I th- I truly believe a lot of therapists will enter the field when they read it because they'll say, yeah, I, I can take this. I can handle this. And they should be. There's so many. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of young people desperately needing therapists. The, the parents are tearing their hair out looking for therapists. And there aren't enough therapists who are willing to work in this field. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think being able to have that confidence kind of comes from a few places. I I mean, on one hand, reading through the guidance, I think will create a parallel process to what we often hear from parents who we talk to when they say, you know, in my gut, I kind of had this sense that this would have been the right approach, but I had no outside validation that what I was thinking was true. Mm. And I think that happens a lot with therapists as well. Like, you know, if you've been working in the field for 10, 20, 30 years, and you've worked with adolescents your whole career, you know, instinctively, that there is 
our identity exploration, there's the individuation process going on. And so I think a lot of therapists will read this document and feel reassurance that their clinical instincts were indeed correct. And then also, you know, the organization GETA creates that reassurance because we are kind of a united front of therapists. Now, we all come from different backgrounds and everyone may have a different approach to how they work with gender, but being part of a unified group of clinicians who all kind of agree with our membership statement gives you the confidence to know that I'm not just... um this one person shouting into the ether, there are hundreds of other experienced, seasoned, knowledgeable clinicians who also can trust their clinical intuition on an issue that feels kind of scary sometimes. You, you know, I want to say something else, too, that at, uh, GETA itself and the clinical guide, um, we don't put forward a model for working with gender dysphoria. This is not um, some kind of novel approach that we've manualized and developed. We're really just saying, go back to basics, go back to your basic training about how to do therapy and, uh, and work within these, as Joe said, these developmental frameworks or these biopsychosocial frameworks that we're all used to working under. Um, and, and that means that there's room for a range of different approaches. So you might work primarily, uh, psychodynamically. I think you'll see a lot in the guide that will be familiar. You might more work, uh, with cognitive behavioral techniques. And again, I think you'll see stuff in the guide that will be familiar. So it isn't a narrow formulation about how to do this. It's, we're not uh, purporting to put forward um, a, a new model of therapy. We're actually just saying, dust off your chops and, and go in there and, and do what, you're, what you already know how to do. Yeah, th- that's a key point, because I think um, we don't, I think, you know, this world of gender, and we speak about it a lot, and I don't think we quite often emphasize the point enough that the new kid in town is the gender affirmative approach that came in like a rocket around about 10 years ago. You know, it's, you know, it's very hard to put a date on it exactly, but it is definitely, it's the new approach. But we're actually traditional conventional psychotherapy. And it's, it's basically these guidelines is just bringing together all the knowledge that has been accumulated over many years. And then we've kind of put gender into the, into the context of our, our psychological understanding and um, created the guidelines around that. So the, while, the, while the references are very much up to date and very much based on gender, the thinking is conventional psychotherapeutic thinking. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, there, there's so much to the guidance that we're really going to flush out in that webinar that you mentioned, Lisa, but I think it would be valuable now just to help our audience get a a grasp of what this guidance is. We can talk a little bit about what it is and what it is not, because especially when, you know, there's such a huge controversy right now in the public amongst clinicians and physicians about how to support kids with gender dysphoria. There's a lot of worry about things like conversion therapy and what's exploratory therapy. So let's just kind of go through some of the main points to explain, you know, what the guidance is and then what it isn't. So I guess I can start off by saying, um, 
we are we are trying to put forward a, an approach that would be open to a variety of outcomes, meaning we do not necessarily think that uh, identifying with one's birth gender is the desired outcome, nor do we think that celebrating a trans identity is the only necessary outcome. So working from this approach means that the client has all of his or her options open and that identity does not have to follow a particular path and it is not seen like it's favorable to have one identity outcome versus another. You know, if I may, what I always like to analogize here is that a lot of times people come into therapy and they say, you know, I'm thinking of leaving my marriage. And when someone says that to me, I, I'm not thinking, oh, yeah, you know, she needs to leave her marriage. Let me um, let me give her the number of a divorce lawyer. Nor am I thinking, oh, my God, how terrible she shouldn't leave her marriage. You know, it's it's like we're going to we're I am going to be agnostic and sit down and open that up with that person and uh, let her have a full process without me putting, you know, I'm going to try my hardest to avoid putting my finger on the scale. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's great. Um, another thing that gender exploratory therapy does is it appreciates that gender dysphoria can emerge in a context right? So like all other kinds of distress, there's a developmental, a family, a relational, a social context. And so in helping the client with that thorough process, we want to give them lots of different lenses to understand the contextual way that their gender dysphoria emerged. Yeah, I mean, I I would say all distress arises in a context. And, you know, we seek to understand where the distress comes from and what meaning it has. I mean, that's, this is just, again, this is just a very normal part of what we do in the consulting room. Mm-hmm. There's also a developmental um, kind of appreciation for this as well. So working, especially with adolescents, as they are the largest cohort of Uh, people seeking out gender services now, we have to keep in mind that adolescents are going through a specific process, which is typical of the adolescent experience. So the the guidance also takes this into consideration. Yeah, I would would just add that understanding uh, how how we progress through these developmental stages is, is just, again, it's just so key to uh to a to a young person's process so taking a developmental approach just very bread and butter stuff one of the very useful things in the guidelines is um the way that the especially in the case studies the way that the therapists show how you can approach the issue of gender in a way that will help the adolescents to open their minds to other possibilities it is one of the challenges of working with this cohort unlike it's not different from every other type of client you work with but they do come in with a definite opinion about what the issue is and they expect you to accept their their views at, at face value. So I think there's some really good guidance um, about how to approach that and how to get these kids to open their minds to other possibilities. Mm-hmm. To get curious about it. Yeah. I remember uh, we did, a, Jens Beck did a, a kind of a, a seminar for college counselors 
Um, and it, it went very well. It, it was very interesting. But um, I was really surprised and it got backed up by a lot of people agreeing. When one councillor said, you know, you know, working as a councillor, you know, it's all often very muddy. And it's often there's often very not a clear cut path. And we're all nodding along at this point. And she said, and yet when we had uh, a gender uh, a client, a client who had gender distress, it was like, oh, great. I know this. I have the solution. <laughs> I know. And they'd slam them into the affirmative section. Off they go. You know, the, the, I've got this. So it, it was a real source of relief. And the other counsellors in this college seminar were agreeing, saying, oh, yeah. And she she kind of came up with the question saying, but it seems like they're just like everybody else. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> no answers, muddy, complicated. You know, we contain multitudes. And, you know, that is the, the work of the therapist to live in the ambivalence and to live in that place where there isn't a simple answer. And actually, if there is a simple answer, to be a little bit wary because you might mm-hmm. be simplifying the issue when it could be more complex than that. So it was it was really sad, but it gave me a glimpse into why people would jump on the affirmative approach, because they think finally there's something with a clear cut answer, a path and a solution. Lovely. <laughs> and it's one part of my job is easy. Yeah. And especially given that there are a lot of comorbid conditions that tend to present along with gender dysphoria, you know, the guide also talks a little bit about how important it is to work with those other experiences as well, without necessarily dismissing the importance that the identity is playing for the client. So I think being able to kind of walk that fine line is something that therapists can find really challenging. And then they might look at the guidance and say, oh, yeah, actually, I do. I do know how to do this. I do know how to work with multiple presenting issues at the same time. And there's there's really um, useful guidance about conducting a full assessment. Um, that's really invaluable. And I, there's a lot of material on um, the the actual statistics about suicide risk because therapists can be really worried about what they've heard about suicide risk and so there's reassurance that way about yeah you know here's what the numbers actually say yeah yeah i thought the section on suicide was just just so great it's it's really very concise and and thorough and joe i want to pick up your point about assessment because another thing that's explicit in the guide about exploratory therapy is to pay attention to the sexual development of the young person and that this is a really important part of assessment because as we know very well, uh, some kids who are uh, taking this route may have a lot, may be same sex attracted and have some shame about that and are electing to identify as trans because uh, that that is actually less shameful than admitting to themselves that they're gay or lesbian. So that that has got to be an important part of the discussion. And I, I know, you know, one of the dismaying things reading about what it was like at the Tavistock is that that was just, you just didn't talk about that. So it's really affirmative approaches, I think, really been doing a huge disservice to lesbian and gay kids. And that's got to be part of our assessments, got to be part of what we explore. Right. I know uh, WPATH obviously released their standards of care and um, to a lot of controversy, as far as I can see. And, you know, they, they, they have been 
really the only show in town that have been offering anything for anybody with gender. It's kind of astonishing when you realise that there has not been other steers, really. There hasn't been other places to go. And I I, I kind of think, well, isn't that amazing? Like they're on standards of care eight. They've been kind of releasing effectively different guidance for, for, for quite some time, certainly since 1979. And um, I'm I'm kind of thinking, I'm thrilled we're releasing this. And I look forward to other people with other groups, with other analysis, entering the world of gender and saying, how about this? You know, you know what I mean? There's more than one way to look at these things. And I, I think this, it's extraordinary that there's only really been one show in town. It's, it's stunning that there hasn't been other serious organizations saying, how about looking about, at, how about looking at it this way? Or whatever, but we're 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 very much saying, well, let's take a psychotherapeutic look at this. Well, for so long, it's been on every level, no discussion, no discussion allowed about anything, and we're saying, well, wait, yeah, yes, yes, there is discussion, um, and there's a lot of it. So, yeah, because therapists like to talk. Yeah, <laughs> and we'd like to listen i mean that's also mirrored in in just our advocating of like extended periods of time right i mean i think some of the shocking stories that i hear from young people or or older people who transitioned is like you know i had one conversation or I had two hour long conversations and our clinical guidance says you know this is a long process not because we are quote, gatekeeping, and we expect people to prove something to the therapist, but that individuals deserve a full opportunity to process and explore and understand themselves and the gender dysphoria in all of these kind of contextual ways. So it is also not you do this quick assessment, you rule out certain kinds of comorbid conditions, and then you send a person along their way. You give every individual like a fair shot at really deeply knowing themselves. You, you know, and I'm, I'm a, I'm a Jungian analyst, so we don't, we don't really do brief treatment over here in my corner of the world. <laughs> um, but so, so obviously I, I guess I'm biased in this regard, but I'm thinking back to my analogy about the person who comes in who says, you know, I think I want to leave my marriage. And this is a pretty common presentation in my practice. And you know, the, the people that I've worked with, um, men and women through the years that have come in with that and I would say that probably the average amount of time that we work together before they make a decision one way or another is probably a year and a half of weekly treatment. And in that time, we, you know, explore, you know, how did you feel when the relationship started? Uh, you know, how was your week with your spouse this week? And, you know, what um, what are your fantasies and, and what dreams did you have about it? And, you know, hey, have, you know, have you tried couples therapy as well? And, and uh, we, we look at it from every possible angle. And, and then often the person gets to a point where, where they feel what I always say is you, you don't feel you're not looking for certainty. You're looking for clarity. Because um, if you're if you're certain, that's probably uh, a sign that you're defending against something, and, and we could talk about that too. Because many of these kids are so certain, and I think that that's actually a, a bad sign because it, it shows that you don't have a relationship with your ambivalence. But in any case, um, yes, I mean a, mm -hmm. a thorough process takes time. Mm -hmm. 
We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving long term care for gender variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. Yeah, that's so powerful. I love that distinction between certainty and clarity. And I mean, this also makes me think a little bit about the informed consent process, which, as we know from, you know, talking with people who have regret they all report that they did not feel like they were fully given the informed consent opportunity. And that goes beyond a tick, a list of tick boxes of like, do you know that this might happen? Do you know that this might happen? Informed consent, when it's really thoroughly undertaken, is like, let's really sit with the possibility of what if you change your mind? Let's really examine what that looks like. Let's sit with the, the social experience, the personal experience. What will it be like to live in a body that appears differently from how you identify? You know that feeling, right? So like, these are not just simply, did you know you might go bald? Did you know you might get acne? So we talk about that in the guidance as well as like, what is a true informed consent process look like and why it's important for therapists to be able to stay grounded in biological reality while still honoring, you know, the role of the identity. And I think that's really important. Well, and I think that's such a crucial chapter and it's so well documented and, and um, it's very authoritative. And it's important because, as as we all know, informed consent isn't really happening. You know, it's cursory at, you know, so... Um, no, I think that's a really strong and important chapter in the guidelines. The, the thing about informed consent is it, it'll give you strength when you have dark nights of the soul. Mm. If, if you've been really delved into something, if you've really weighed it up, if you've looked at all the different signs and you still decide to go forth, and then some years later you think this is harder than I thought it would be, and I'm I'm coming to regret it. You you the knowledge that you've you really grappled with it at the time will will make you it'll give you confidence. You'll think I, I genuinely weighed it all up and I went for it. So uh, it'll it'll make it so much more palatable that yeah, you did something, it has and maybe it hasn't worked out, but it won't feel like I never explored it. There's something so frightening about that. I agree completely, Stella, to look back and say, but I I had a good process. You know, I made the best decision I could have at the time. That That is a very different experience than to tumble into this dark void of, God, I did something and I didn't even really think about it. And I, you know, I was just, God help me, over on Twitter and uh, there, there's some a, a detransitioner was was posting about um, other detransitioners in detrans groups um, saying that they thought their breasts would grow back once they oh, stopped God. testosterone. Yeah, I saw that. And 
you know, I think that informed consent in this area is so important because um, young people are getting a lot of misinformation online. So a, a, a good therapeutic process would unearth some of these assumptions and make sure the person's progressing. Um, you know, I've worked with young people who who really, really thought that taking testosterone was going to turn them into a man. And, you know, that's, you, you're not setting yourself up for a good outcome if you don't have reality-based expectations about what this treatment's going to do and not do. That's so crucial. That's so crucial. And that's why ideology and belief systems really do not have a place in therapy on either side. No ideology really belongs in therapy because we really have to help clients understand a true realistic version of what might happen if they took this path or that path. And when there's comorbidities with autism and stuff, I remember speaking with a a mother and and child and the, the discussion was, you know, how, how, testosterone might impact and you know it was a kind of wide range of discussion it wasn't really therapeutic it was just we were chatting and you know when I when I spoke about the 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 ravages testosterone could do to the female body the kid who 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 was autistic was on the spectrum said oh yeah but it wouldn't the testosterone wouldn't wreck my body the way it would yours Stella because you see I'm male (laughs) but yeah That was the black and white thinking. It gave me a better insight into the autistic mind than anything else. It was because I'm using the male pronouns and I've identified as male. Testosterone won't hit me the way it would hit you, Stella, because you're female. And I, I, that took my breath away. I was like, oh, gosh. Oh, this is, this is a whole different way of understanding everything. And when, you're, when you are working in that world, that's when you realize, oh, my God, Informed consent needs to take a whole step back to make sure that we've got everything explored to to to, to count to you know to counteract a very literal understanding of of any given situation. You, you know, I I want us to talk for a few minutes about what exploratory therapy is not. Okay. And the first thing I want to say is it is not conversion therapy, and that's what we're routinely uh, accused of. But gender exploratory therapy does not aim for any fixed outcome in regard to how one experiences or expresses gender. So so there, we're, we're not, as we've said a couple different ways tonight, we're not looking for a certain outcome. Yeah, and it might be worth just touching on how this conflation came up. I know we've covered this in the podcast before, but conversion therapy um, was a term originally used to describe attempts to make uh, same-sex attracted people straight. And there were a huge variety of interventions that therapists and psychologists and clergy members and counselors used to use, ranging from, you know, physical torture all the way to kind of coercion and um, kind of black emotional uh, manipulation and things like that. And luckily, this practice has been thoroughly discredited. I mean, no serious therapist is using any conversion therapy efforts on gay clients. But this has been lumped in with gender identity um, in, in such a way that you just stick the word gender identity into these conversion therapy bans. And 
assume that it applies in the same way. But frankly, we have no research whatsoever on, let's say, a body affirming therapy or a therapy that helps a person explore why they feel such a disconnect with their sex body. That is very different from therapies which attempt to make people change their sexual attractions, which are quite rooted in the body. So we just want to kind of make that distinction because I think like the therapist we talked about earlier, who might be a bit nervous to work with this population, often feel that way because they don't want to be accused of practicing conversion therapy. And we have articulated very clearly in this guidance that this is absolutely um, a completely unfounded type of claim that is made against anyone who questions the affirmative care model. And we we have you know, no doubt whatsoever that anyone who reads this guidance will come away with the same conclusion. And, you know, and hand in hand with that, there's also a pretty thorough accounting of the evidence base for affirmative therapy. You know, what, what it shows, well, what it doesn't show in terms of its effectiveness, that's covered as well. Is there anything else exploratory therapy is not? It's not WPATH. <laughs> Well, and another thing that that we say that I, I really like is it does not assume that a trans identification is universally adaptive. It might be adaptive, but it it might not be. It might be a response to to trauma or developmental difficulties, and it might be a good enough response, and it might not be. And there's there's room to question that, as there always should be. We all have ways that we deal with our distress, and some of those ways are are adaptive and move us forward in life and help us grow and thrive and flourish, and some of them don't. Mm, yeah. And uh, if you're engaged in a maladaptive uh, behavior, your therapist ought to be able to help you explore that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, our, our guidance touches on you know, uh, processes that may not be in our active conscious awareness. And, you know, that terminology, I think, can feel alienating for some contemporary clinicians who maybe weren't trained or um, familiar with that kind of language. But, I mean, we also call it like implicit thinking or, you know, um, uh, maladaptive coping. And I think there are a lot of different ways to frame that. But our guidance takes into consideration that, we have our surface story, and then there's what's going on beneath the surface. And I think the whole point of therapy is that we often need the help of a third person or a third party to to give us that, that opportunity to explore what else could be going on. Because if we could do it ourselves, we wouldn't need the support of a therapist. We could just like look in the mirror and identify every single thing that is kind of lurking beneath the surface. But that's not what happens. So I think our guidance accepts and acknowledges that there are those processes which deserve a chance to be um, explored and looked at. And, and you know, as you mentioned, Joe, we don't assume that transition or medical interventions are universally helpful, right? So you talked about looking at the evidence and what we know and what we don't know about these interventions. And if we're assuming that sometimes trans identification can be adaptive and authentic, but sometimes it can be unhelpful, that also means that the corresponding medical interventions could be unhelpful as well. So we take a cautious approach to making those kinds of life-changing decisions. 
I, I think that the, the most important thing about these guidelines is to give the therapists out there a choice. You know, they're not alone with a, with a questioning perspective and they're not forced to adopt the affirmative care model, but there's, there's actually a whole wealth of, of information and experience that we're bringing to them. And I, I think that's going to be tremendously reassuring to, because it's a very lonely experience to, to buck the system. Yeah, and it's it's a lonely experience to think that there that, that there one should be doing one way, and it goes against all your 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 conventional training. So I I would I I know of because I've met so many clinicians who worked either in gender clinics or within a, an affirming sphere, and felt really uneasy that they weren't carrying out therapy that they felt was appropriate. And I think uh, when they see these guidelines, they'll realize. Yeah, it's okay. I, I can, I can. It's it's all right to kind of bring a, a psychological approach into it. I think a lot of, I genuinely think a lot of psychologists and psychotherapists have been suppressing their, their training and their instincts around this. And um, it's because it became politicized rather than this came from, I feel, a clinical point. I think this, the, the clinical aspect of it became politicized rather than uh, this fabulous new theory got got shoved down our our throat by clinicians it feels a, a political side of things shoved down our throat the the, the affirmative the, there's a difference in that rather than very enthusiastic psychological um theorists they weren't there it was more a political wing that's how that's how i feel it kind of came about and so we're going to have a launch of the of the all new beautiful uh, guidelines, um, who who wants to talk about the launch? I can't wait. Well, uh, so first of all, uh, when we make these guidelines public, and we're we're just um, you know giving them a little spit and polish right now, they will be freely available on the Ghetto website for all to to read and find and download. Uh, and our our website is genderexploratory.com. Now they're not there yet, but uh, hopefully within a few weeks they will be. And then we're going to launch with a webinar. Um, what what we're going to do is we've we've selected two different times to accommodate uh, different time zones. So both will be on Saturday, December third. There will be one at 9 a.m. Eastern time, that's New York time, and another one at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And there'll be just 90 minutes, and it will will be uh, us, I think, mm-hmm. um, giving, giving an overview and probably talking through some of the case examples and, and making time for questions. And it's going to be free. So I hope lots of people will come and let your colleagues know about it. If you're a therapist, we'd really like to get the word out. Yeah, I think it's going to be really nice to just um, have some concrete, tangible, practical uh, things that therapists can take away with them. I know for, for myself as a clinician, whenever I'm, you know, doing continuing education or taking webinars, it's always so nice to have practical, applicable uh, little nuggets that I can try out, you know, uh, in, in real time with my clients. And I think going through the case examples really helps to ground clinicians in some of that um, kind of practical advice. And 
We also know that Q&As are really valuable when somebody is feeling unsure or they would like to ask like, hey, what about this? I have a client going through this. What do you think? I think that can be really great. So we we invite anyone to come with their questions or their ideas. Um, If you would like to learn more about the event, you can um, look at the show notes for this episode. We'll have a link there. But the bit.ly link is bit.ly slash Geta December. So you can find us there. And of course, on the Geta website, we'll also be updating some information about this in the next few weeks. So perhaps by the time this episode goes out, it will be up. So definitely we invite you to take a look at uh, the Geta website for more information. What else do you guys think? Well, I just want to say if you're a clinician and you've been thinking about joining Get, I just want to make sure you know that we have uh, weekly supervision groups that are um, free and there's just a wealth of really wonderful clinicians who, you know, people in our private community can ask one another questions and look for referrals and uh, share uh, articles and information. So it's a really lovely community that we're building. And uh, we welcome you if you are uh, interested in, in working in this field uh, from an exploratory standpoint. And some people uh, wonder about um, um, joining Geta and they think, oh, I, I'm not working in gender. Can I join Geta? Or I'm, you know, they, they, they give themselves barriers to join uh, without understanding. No, 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 we're, we're, we're kind of open to, to anybody joining, not, you know, a clinician joining who's interested in working in an exploratory way with gender. That I think that's really the criteria. It's not, it's not as people think they have to have jumped through certain hoops. And um, I, I, I think that's important to highlight that there's, there's many, many different people in Geta with all different ranges of approaches and where they're coming from. Yeah, and additionally, you don't have to be listed in the directory. So I think this is a key question. People think if I join Geta, I'm automatically going to be listed and maybe due to my circumstances with my employer or whatever they may not want to be for for a variety of reasons. But you can join Geta and just become part of the membership community, which is behind the scenes, and you can opt out of being in the directory. And there are also um, people within the membership who are not listed who aren't even necessarily clinicians. So for example, we have researchers, we have graduate students, we have psychologists in training who want to come there and just participate in the kind of community and the sharing of resources. So if you are interested and you work in the mental health field at a variety of capacities, you're welcome to come check us out. Yeah, for for example, I'm not on the guy in the directory because I'm I'm flat out. There's no way I can mm-hmm. take on a new client, much as I'd love to. And so, so you know, it's it's no biggie not to be in, in the in the directory. It's it's not an essential. People think it's an essential part, and it's it's not. Yeah, it's optional. Although I will say, if you work in this fashion and you don't mind being listed, and you're building your practice, come on in because yeah. we've got clients for you. Oh my you. god. So many yeah. people, so many people who are in so much distress and they, they, you know, they could really benefit. And it's not just the teenagers. It's not just ROGD. There's lots of different flavors of this. And I, I often think there's a lot of parents who actually would really benefit as well. 
just from somebody who has a good understanding. There's detransitioners, there's desisters. There's a lot of different people who have been impacted who would really benefit from this. And and uh, th- thank you, Stella, for mentioning that, because I, I do think it's important for people to know that um, the, the GETA uh, um, directory would be a great place for a detransitioner to go. I mean, most of our therapists are working with detransitioners or have a real interest in working with detransitioners. I know people have asked us many times, are you going to provide training on working with detransitioners? And I'll let you know that that is in progress. It's in the works. So hopefully we'll be releasing that soon. So it, it's a it's a pretty broad, open, and friendly community. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is probably a good place to leave it for now. Um, how can people find us? How can people find Geta? Our website is genderexploratory.com. And the Eventbrite link for the launch of the clinical guidance will be in the show notes of this episode. So if you are a therapist listening, we would love to see you there and we invite everybody to join. And um, yeah, we, we really enjoyed this episode and just being able to share a little bit more about the organization and the guidance with you guys. Thanks, Lisa and Joe. Thanks for having us on. It was good. It was great. (laughs) Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 